This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is a returning champion, uh, Brooke Shelley, a noted sapphist who lives in Portland, Oregon, with her cat, Snorri. She writes about technology and queer theory, works for Turbine Lab Labs, not lads, and shares the board for Basic Rights Oregon. Hi, Brooke. Hey, how's it going? I sort of wish now that your company was called Turbine Lads, um, <laughs> and it was just about a bunch of lads who were also turbines. But this is—it's almost too. Turbine Dads because like half the company are dads. Oh man, I everything about your bio is just very, very—it's like the Mad Libs of you, <laughs> which I guess is just all that a uh, a bio is. But still, it makes me happy every time, and I'm so glad to have you back on the show. I'm glad to be back on this show. It feels uh, it feels exciting. I feel a little bit more prepared, a little bit less prepared, too, at the same time. Because you know how to do it now. You realize that you can just, like, you know, roll in and let the people know what's right and what's not, and uh, that you're going to leave the world a better place than you found it a few minutes earlier. Exactly. And that's that's the key here, is giving advice on things I am completely unequipped to give advice on. Yeah. I mean, as are we all. <laughs> um, we're doing our best. And I think the last time we were talking about this, you said you still hadn't decided just how, like, uh, how much you were going to shoot from the hip. I don't think that was actually a yeah. phrase that you used, but I, I don't know. Did you feel like you found a, a happy medium? Yeah, I think I settled on one. I, I think I've got my, uh, my advice persona. Good. Cause I, I have to say as, as one of the friends that I go to most regularly for advice, um, Aww. it is great sometimes when you, uh, just come at it with the perspective of like, well, either you're going to do something about it or you're not. Here's what you could do. Otherwise, what are you going to do? <laughs> it's um, the shit or get off the pot advice. It really is. I can always count on you for that. So um, I, I actually think that's going to be super, super useful for our first letter because it's a, a, a letter uh, where on the one hand, the problem is big and the problem is real. And on the other hand, I think the letter writer might have an opportunity to not have a problem. I think you're right. All right, you go ahead and read it. Okay, um, the subject is babysitting. Dear Prudence, my sister is a stay-at-home mother of two and constantly bellyaches about how tired and stressed out she is. My brother-in-law has to travel for work and is often gone for days at a time. I work full-time but have no children. I try to help out only to be rebuffed. My sister says she has no time to go to the grocery store, so I offer to pick her up, pick up some items for her. I get criticized for getting the wrong brand of toothpaste or the wrong size of cereal. If I offer to help clean, I'm told I'm doing it wrong and my sister will clean up after me. I've offered to watch the kids for an evening or even a few hours so that she can get out to a movie or get her hair done. She never takes me up on it. Other friends with kids have offered to babysit, but my sister would rather sit at home and stew. It's affecting her marriage. My brother-in-law approached me about helping her more while he was away. As soon as he gets home, he gets slammed with a litany of woes my poor sister had to suffer through. He is a good man, but I can't force my sister to let me help her. Talking to her is a one-sided monologue of her misery. I often put the phone down and pick up a book while making agreeable noises. She never notices. I watch my coworkers' kids often and my neighbors on occasion and even overnight. 
I don't understand why my sister is so different. Does she like being this unhappy? What do I do here? I think we can answer the question about, maybe not does she like being unhappy, but is she determined to continue in the circumstances that produce the unhappiness? The answer there seems very clear, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think she sees herself as a Job. Yeah, I mean, she'll she'll ask for help, you will offer help, and then she will say, that is not what I wanted. So, you know, when you offer solutions to her complaints, she resents them because she does not want solutions. She wants something else. It's not quite clear to me what that is, but whatever it is, it's not, I'd like to have less work and more help. Yeah, it. I think when someone is acting like this, um, you kind of answer your own question uh, when you say, I can't force my sister to let me help her. That's the crux. You can't. Mm-hmm. You you literally cannot um, get anyone to do anything they don't want to do. Uh, it's sort of the, you know, rock and a hard place. So the best thing you can do at this point is stop trying. Yeah. And, and I think there's a couple different ways of stopping trying. Um, you know, if you want to stop going to the grocery store on her behalf, I think that's fair. Um, if you offer to help clean and then she does it again after you stop doing that, I think stick to, hey, if you ever want to let me watch the kids so you can go out, um, that's certainly fine to say, especially because I imagine you enjoy staying, spending time with the kids. Um, but if she doesn't take you up on it, don't try to offer other things that she's made it clear she doesn't want. Um, and then when it comes to, you know, I often put the phone down and pick up a book while making agreeing noises, but she never notices. Stop doing that. Yeah. Um, it's not super healthy. Either, you know, either, you know, listen in those moments um, or say, hey, this has been going on for a really long time. I'm sorry to hear that you're stressed out, but I'd like to talk about something else, Um, which may sound like just the scariest thing in the world, because what if she gets mad? Well, she's kind of already mad a little bit all the time. Um, And at least then you would not have to be half reading a book and half listening to her. You could either just read the book if she was like, nope, I only want to talk if I can complain for 20 minutes and then do nothing. Or she says, Oh, wow. Oh, God, you're right. Okay. Uh, What do you like to do? And I think an important question to ask yourself is, um, you know, what what are you getting out of this? What what is it about being helpful that's important to you? Mm -hmm. And what would it cost you to not feel as you were being so helpful? Um, Because maybe it feels nice to be like, I'm selflessly giving of myself, but I'm not getting anything back. Like, it sounds like you you've also kind of built up a, a desire to maybe feel bad about this. Um, If she was writing in or her husband was writing in, I would say there's a good opportunity for therapy. Uh, But you're writing in. And so I think, like Danny said, one of the best things you can do is have that conversation and say, you know, I feel less respected or less loved. I feel hurt when you don't um, value my input Mm -hmm. or when you take the things I do for granted. Uh, that's probably a good thing to talk about. Like this person's in your family and it sounds like you want to keep them in your life. So it may be helpful to have that conversation. It's certainly possible that she has no idea how you feel and she just thinks everyone in the world is failing me and, uh, you know, I'm the only person that can do any of this stuff. And it might be a wake-up call if you were to say, I feel really bad and it hurts. Um, Maybe she hasn't, you know, thought of that. Yeah. And I think, too, the most important thing to let go of is a strategy that I kind of term like trying to gym from the office your way out of something. And I 
have done this in my own life and it doesn't work. The The strategy of like, I put the phone down, pick up a book while making agreeing noises. <laughs> it's sort of like in that moment, you are imagining yourself as the character Jim on The Office, who especially in the early seasons spends a lot of time looking directly at the camera as if there were some sort of invisible, reasonable audience watching this and sympathizing with you. And that sort of action that you're doing in that moment, reading a book is very ostentatious, but she also doesn't register it at all. Right. So you're making a lot of eye contact with this camera that doesn't exist as if to say like, man, if someone were to see this conversation in a TV show, they would immediately realize that I was being taken advantage of. Um, that's not going to work with your sister. You know that she doesn't notice that. So every time you do that, um, you're like cheating to camera when there's no camera. <laughs> and so it might make you feel, you know, reasonable, beleaguered, put upon, like a really good person who's being taken advantage of. But it doesn't get you what you want, and it doesn't help your sister get accurate feedback on what she's doing and how it's affecting you. So uh, as a strategy, I don't think it's a good one. That does not mean you have to, like, haul ass over to your sisters right now and say, listen up, you do the following eight things that suck and you need to stop right away. But um, I do think you need to find some combination of, one, scaling back on your need to fix when she feels bad. Um, you know, I get that it's hard when somebody you care about doesn't feel well, but when it's this kind of a pattern, when she doesn't seem to want actual help, when she seems mostly to want to complain constantly, um, you really need to scale back the degree to which you think, oh gosh, I have to do something when she feels bad. You don't. Um, and I, I think also trying to find a way to say, hey, I've noticed that this happens a lot. Whenever I have tried to do this, it's been very clear that you don't actually want that. So I'm going to stop doing it. Um, and, and then when it comes to your brother-in-law, um, I, I think the thing to say to him is, um, I have tried to help out more. She's made it really clear she doesn't want that. I really hope that you're able to talk to her um, about the balance of work in your guys' home because it doesn't seem like it's working for either one of you, but I can't do that for you. Um, and not in a way that's like, you jerk, you're trying to make me do it. I understand why he came to you for help. But just to really make it clear, these are going to have to be difficult conversations that you and my sister have as husband and wife. And I can't do it on your behalf. Totally. My guess is she won't love it. I, I think you can try to say it as lovingly as you can um, and to, you know, divorce yourself from outcome. Um, she may not get it immediately, but, you know, in the future, if like 20 minutes into a phone call, she's doing it again, I, I think you can and should say, hey, I've actually got to go. I, I hope you're able to figure this stuff out. And I think we all have people in our lives like this that, um, you know, want to be the expert, want to be the person, the only person who's capable in their life. And yeah, I think, like you said, the best way to deal with that is to have difficult conversations. And if they don't produce any fruit, to um, put press pause on those relationships or walk away, depending on how much you can. Well, um, you know, not to like bring it all back to like our friendship, but I think one of the things that I have really valued, uh, you know, I, before I was like uh, ready to take steps towards transitioning or coming out, I would call you, you know, not infrequently yeah. and talk to you about what I was afraid of or what I was anxious about or how do I know that what I'm feeling is real? What does real mean? Um, and it never I, I don't think it never got to a point where you said, like, you stop calling me, knock it off. But <laughs> Um, you did, I think, offer me really helpful advice in the sense of, you know, I think you've thought about this a lot. Um, I think you've yeah. investigated this with a therapist and that's been useful to you. It seems like this is getting more present, not less. Um, I, I think in your situation, it will help to talk to other people in your life. And until you do that and until you consider or like giving yourself permission to try to transition, um, probably this won't get a lot better. And that was really helpful. Um, yeah. 
because you were you were speaking from your own uh, position and the position of having seen a lot of people go through something similar themselves. Um, and it helped me realize, OK, I, I have maybe reached the limit of how much feeling very, very bad alone in my bedroom is going to help me uh, with the question of whether or not I should transition. Totally. I think there's always a happy medium between um, like feeling bad in your bedroom or pacing endlessly and taking action immediately. And and the degree to which we are inclined towards either direction is um, really ingrained in us from a young age. So right. I know people who like look uh, look before they leap uh, for about a year or two. Uh-huh. I know people who leap without looking and then like years later go, wow, I should have thought about that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's but, not uh, like in one this case, perfect. I think you've you've ruminated a lot. Um, the person who wrote in and and, you know. You, you, you're thinking about this in an okay way. You just need to take an action and hopefully your life will get better. Yeah. Yeah. And if nothing else, you will have fewer conversations that run for, you know, half an hour to an hour where your sister gripes about toothpaste brands. Um, yeah. And you're pretending to read a book. That will be a good outcome, even if she gets a little upset with you. And put all that energy you're spending buying her toothpaste into buying yourself the best toothpaste you can. Yeah. Find and then some good congratulate toothpaste. yourself on being so good at picking your own toothpaste. Yeah. All right. Uh, (laughs) Sticking with the family theme, the subject of the next letter is just sister. Dear Prudence, my aunt and uncle are letting my sister live in their basement apartment for a reduced rent in order to go to school in an expensive city. My parents help pay her bills. I just found out that my sister has been subletting her apartment to a pair of her, quote, friends for up to a grand a month. She added me to the wrong group chat. My aunt and uncle often travel for work and have no kids of their own. As far as they are concerned, my sister is just a social butterfly who has a lot of friends over. I am disgusted by my sister for doing this. She's profiting from her family's generosity. I know that my aunt and uncle are taking a financial loss in order to help my sister. The apartment could easily go for three times what they're getting from her. But I'm afraid to say anything because they would ask my sister to leave. And she can't afford to go to school and live in that area without family support. She would have to move home if my parents let her. I wish I didn't know this, but I do. So what do I do? Tell my parents? Tell my aunt and uncle? Tell my sister to knock it off? Okay, so... I have some questions here. And the first question is, where is your sister staying right now? <laughs> if she's subletting her apartment, is she still there? Is she staying at a boyfriend's? That was my thought, too. I, my general read after going over that a couple of times was that she's probably also staying there. Okay. Like she's, Which, that's a really expensive apartment. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would like to add another option, which is let it go. Yeah. That's, that's I think, the best option for you here. Yeah, I I think I have to agree. I mean, my own curiosity aside about like what would go on in your sister's life that lets her do this sort of thing um, is probably similar to the the asker's curiosity. But but totally, you you don't need to be the arbiter of justice in this case. And, you know, feeling bad about somebody being taken advantage of. Maybe your aunt and uncle are aware already and they're totally fine with it. Um, Maybe they're not and they wouldn't be fine with it. But, you know, I I don't think you need to be the person who brings down the hammer and says... um, Outrage is happening. Yeah, must, you know, I must find justice. Yeah, if you, I, I think there is more sibling rivalry here than a real desire to see justice done. Um, it's more a sense of my sister's getting away with something, and I don't want to let that happen. Um, and I don't think that that's a good enough reason to say anything. Like, uh, you know, the the like the question is like, what's the harm being done here? Which is that your aunt and uncle could be renting out their place for three times as much money. Okay, you right. know, your aunt and uncle apparently own multiple properties, travel a lot for work, and have no children. They seem to be doing <laughs> pretty well. 
Um, even if your sister was living there by herself, they would still be, you know, getting less than market value for that property. They're aware of that. They're doing that on purpose. Um, right. So it, your your wealthy aunt and uncle could be slightly wealthier right now. That's the biggest harm. And I don't think that that's big enough to snitch. I totally agree. Um, I, I think this is more just like, and I get it. Like if, if I had, you know, gone through college and then I found out that my sibling had come up with like a low scale scam that was enabling them to make some extra money throughout college, I would definitely be like, oh man, I wish I had thought of that. Um, or <laughs> I can't believe my, you know, little sister is going to go through college slightly less broke than I did. I get it. I, I would feel jealous too. But, you know. It's possible your sister has already started a career in property management. And <laughs> yeah. uh, ultimately, maybe she should be charging more for her sublet. <laughs> I mean, at this point, we just have to acknowledge that, like, being a landlord is a scam. Um, and Yeah, like, exactly. Capitalism like, is a scam. Yeah, that's the problem, not just your sister. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I, I think this is one where, like, journal about it. You know, feel free to let yourself feel jealous and resentful. I get it. That's understandable. Um if you were to say something at best, maybe your aunt and uncle would kick her out and bring in renters. At worst, they would say some version of we already knew that or, um, you know, your sister would move back in with your parents and uh, that would not be fun for any of you. It doesn't sound like um, and you would not be any better off like this does not actually affect your life in any material way. Yeah, totally. You, yeah. you get to give yourself the gift of not caring. Yeah. And frankly, your sister now knows, having added you to the wrong group chat, that you've got a little something on her. And I don't think that you should abuse that. I really, <laughs> really don't. But you get at least the moral superiority of being the older sibling who's like, all right, I know this, but I'm not going to do anything about this. And, you know, that that probably feels pretty good. I have never got What do they anything. say in the mafia world? Like a vig? Like you could get a cut of this. <laughs> oh, don't, boy. Don't no. do that. Don't get a cut of this. No, no. I, I think this is a situation where the letter writer does not need to get more involved than they already are. But like, No, totally not. But I, I think in a less, uh, less good world, you'd be like, listen, I've got you over a barrel. I take half of that money and I don't say anything. Yeah. I mean, maybe your aunt and uncle will find out anyways. Maybe these actually are friends of your sister and they like needed a place to stay and it's working out really well for everybody. There's just so much that you don't know. And all you know is like a brief text thread. I, I think this is just one of those things where it feels like a bigger deal than it is because it's your sister. And um, just go do something you enjoy instead. Uh, go to see a movie, spend some time with your friends, you know, do something fun in your apartment that you get to live in. Um, mm -hmm. And don't worry about your sister. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> yeah. All right, this next one I saved for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Anytime. Um, the subject is self-loathing lesbian. Dear Prudence, after years of denial, I have finally come to realize I'm a lesbian. I hate to say this, but I think I have a lot of internalized homophobia. All of my friends are straight. I dress in a way that reads feminine slash straight. And I hang out in straight spaces, and I don't know anything about lesbian culture except through TV shows. I don't want to get all new friends or change my wardrobe. But sometimes I'll see cute girls at the gym and they'll assume I'm straight. Plus, I don't feel like a real lesbian, in quotes, because I'm not evolved in activism. I don't really like nature, etc. <laughs> I hate how judgmental I am, but I wish my life would just go back to normal. Am I awful for feeling this way? All my friends are super liberal and would be fine with me as a lesbian, but I'm not fine with myself. Please help. 
So I think we just need to start by saying you do not have to enjoy hiking to be a lesbian. <laughs> also, I love that, uh, um, you know, being a lesbian isn't normal, which honestly, like that's part of my identity as being a weirdo. So I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, this I, I, I think this letter writer is aware that they're dealing with a lot of self-loathing right now. And they have uh, this idea of there's normal life and then there's lesbianism. And I don't know how to reconcile the two. And I think normal is the gold standard to uh, reach for. Um, And that's a lot to deal with. And lesbian life is really just having like elven friends with short haircuts and uh, living in the woods. Um, But but she doesn't like to hike, Brooke. Yeah, no, I know. But that's why I'm saying she'd have to make all new elven friends. So I, I think that like you're you're developing your view of what a lesbian is through TV shows is definitely impacting this. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that you would need to have all gay friends or that you would need to uh, cut your hair short or quote unquote, get involved in activism. None of those are a thing. Honestly, you could do everything you're doing right now, except just go tell the girl at the gym you think is cute. Hey, I think you're cute and like wink or something. Um, that's all you need to do. You just need to have sexual desire for women as a woman and then, bingo, bingo, you're a lesbian. Um, what you do with it after that is the more challenging part and sort of the lifelong difficulty of being a queer person in a hetero world. But uh, I don't know, Danny, like, you're a queer person. How many of your friends are straight? Because I have a lot myself. Some, for sure. Yeah, I, I think yeah. there's this idea that, like, either I keep my life the way it is with no lesbians, no other queer people in my life. And then I feel isolated and misunderstood. Or I throw away all of my straight friends and I only hang out with lesbians and every third word out of my mouth is lesbian and I wouldn't enjoy that. I feel like I would become a one-issue person. <laughs> and that's yeah. those are not your two options. Um, you can keep... I mean, it's not the 20s. Yeah, you can keep all of your friends and, and, and get some other friends. Like, you can add to the circle of friends. Um, your straight and gay friends can even hang out sometimes. Um, what? I, I don't I don't want to like make it sound like I feel dismissive. Like I, this person, I think, is young. They've they've had a lot of like tough stuff they've gone through to accept themselves as a lesbian. And I think that that's like I don't want to make light of the fears and anxieties that they have. But I also do think no. the more lesbians and queer people that you meet and invite into your already lovely life, the more you will realize um, that this uh, does not need to look like. Um, throwing out everything else in your life that you enjoyed before you were able to come out to yourself um, and starting over from scratch. And and I will share this from my own life. Like, you may find that as you come out to the people around you and as you start trying to date women and as you start trying to accept yourself as a lesbian, that the people in your life right now may not stay in your life forever. But honestly, that's part of being an adult. And as you change the things that you like to do, the people that you like to do and the places you like to go, the people that are in your life right now may not follow along. Um, you may find you have less in common or less to talk about. And especially um, a lot of people I know who are first coming to terms with being trans or being queer. Uh, I think there's a little bit of like, there can be the flip flop of like initial excitement of like, all of a sudden, this is what I really care about the most. And your friends may not have that in common with you. So you find less to talk about. And maybe there's a um, overcorrection sometimes. And then you come back around and a year or so later, you're like, hey, we haven't talked in a while. I miss talking to you about the things we used to talk about. Um, I, I don't think you're in danger of that right now because it seems like you're you're more in danger of trying to ignore that part of your life that feels uh, pretty pressing. Um, but I can tell you this. I know a lot of 
uh, lesbian and queer women who dress femme or feminine, who uh, look quote unquote straight and sleep with plenty of women. Um, I don't know what city you're in or what the community around you looks like, but uh, we are all over the place. Um, there are so many lesbians everywhere. And if you like any kind of activity, I guarantee there are lesbians who also like that activity, whether it's playing with Pokemon trading cards, uh, going to see a movie, or skydiving. Those are the like, only three things that anyone enjoys. Exactly. Those are your three options. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> three options. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought that up, too, because I think that that is something that's worth untangling, um, which is like... Sometimes I'll see cute girls at the gym. I'm pretty sure they assume I'm straight. By the way, you don't know that they assume. I mean, unless they're coming up to you and saying you seem heterosexual, uh, <laughs> you you are just assuming that they are making that assumption. Um, exactly. And sometimes I think, as you say, lots of lesbians are mistaken for straight women all the time. And, and frankly, there is no amount of like lesbian you can look that will guarantee that you will never be mistaken for straight in your lifetime. And I realize that saying something like looking like a lesbian means a billion different things. Um, uh, but I, I think mostly what I want to do is is remove the idea that, quote unquote, looking straight is um, a problem that is unique to you or is something that you have to get rid of in order to date women. Um, you know, par part of the thing about being a, a gay person is you are not necessarily going to be walking around with like a sign flashing above your head constantly that makes it very, very clear um, who you are interested in and that will guarantee that women will come up to you and ask you out. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the easiest way to date women is not, I think, to change your wardrobe. It's to ask women out, as you said. Um, yep. And that's going to feel new and daunting and difficult. And it may help first to make friends with uh, lesbian and bisexual women um, and, and, and all sorts of people. Um, but that, you know, you don't, you don't need to. You, you certainly can. We've all done the first haircut um, <laughs> that definitely signals to a lot of people like, hey, what's up? Come talk. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's a lot of ways to meet other gay women that does not involve just signaling via your like you can't let your wardrobe do the heavy lifting uh brooke i think it is it is you who i have sometimes used the phrase with um it's difficult if your haircut is the gayest thing about you <laughs> by which i don't That's mean that true. like there are certain things that can only be gay or can't be gay um i'm not trying to make value judgments here but i think we've all a lot of queer people rather have the experience of thinking if I get this haircut or if I stand like this or if I lean like this or if I wear this outfit that will mm -hmm. solve the problem that most of us face which is like how do we find each other how do we communicate what we're interested in um, how do we ask somebody out without fear of being rejected in a homophobic way um, those are all big questions that everybody deals with um, and I don't think that there's going to be one look or amount of activism that's going to um, take that question off the table. And even once you get over the homophobic uh, rejections, right, which, you know, they can still happen, but I, I would suggest that eventually you start to get an idea of, like, who might be receptive. Um, you still have to face the actual fear of rejection, uh, which, in my mind, is the scariest thing. Yeah, like, on top of everything else, it also might just be that you meet somebody and you like them and they don't like you. And and that's in addition to everything you just had to go through. Like, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, and I would say, too, I think that um, if the internalized homophobia, if the lack of self-acceptance is still really, really lingering, um, you know, it might be worth finding, like, local LGBT support groups, um, finding, like, a, a gay therapist. Uh, not a gay therapist. Good Lord. Uh, like, an LGBT competent therapist. Um, I don't right. mean conversion therapy. Um, 
who can kind of help you talk through like what are some of the assumptions that you make about what it means to be a lesbian? Um, what are judgments that you have against yourself or against other people? How can you process those in ways that are, um, you know, useful to you and do not just result in like externalizing your self-loathing onto other people? Um, both going on dates and then also finding, as you said, like places that lesbians and bi women hang out um, and making friends. And again, that doesn't mean throw your old friends away. It just means add some new people to the to the circle and get to know more people. You will probably meet people you want to date through friends. You will probably date some of your friends. Then you will probably go back to being friends. Um, then some <laughs> of your exes who are now your friends will start dating each other. Uh, it's going to be a whole thing. It is. Um, and you've already found one of those places, which is the gym. You go to the gym. A lot of gay women go to the gym. Yeah. Um, you might want to look at like meetup.com. There's a lot of like sort of resources there. There are lesbian groups for nearly everything. Like I said before, um, sometimes those skew older, sometimes younger. But if you have hobbies, I will, unless you live in a very small town, um, it is likely that people who are uh, queer women uh, also like those things and, and hang out and do those things. So you may be able to, you know, dip your toe in the water going to those groups. And doesn't mean that you have to, um, yell who you are when you're in those groups. It doesn't mean you have to tell everyone that this is your first time ever spending time with lesbians um, or that you only know about them from TV. But hey, if you've seen some lesbians on TV, that might be a topic of conversation because uh, everyone in my community still talks about the L word, even though it aired like 10 years ago. It has been so long. And yet, and yet, as you say, it is a big touchstone, um, at least for it's all we've certain. got. <laughs> well, and you know, that's the thing too, like the thing like lesbian culture, like that was a very specific form of like, mostly white uh mm -hmm. like cis los angeles wealthy like related to movies lesbians in the mid-2000s totally. like there's a lot of different kinds of lesbian culture um and i hope that you find different forms of it that feel appealing and exciting and delightful and fun and sexy and affirming to you um and i think the only last thing that i would say is like to whatever extent you can um don't let the first couple of like lesbians or queer women that you meet feel like a referent. Like if I don't like her, I'm not going to like any lesbians ever. She is representative of the whole community. And if, if we don't vibe immediately, then that's just, that's what my, the rest of my life is going to look like. Right. Um, yeah. My last piece of advice would be a fashion piece of advice, which is on. that just like a sort of straight world has a lot of different fashions at any one time, whether it's street fashion or high fashion or like, your local community's sort of fashion. Lesbian community also has a broad variety of fashion expressions. And just like you may shift one year from wearing Ugg boots to another year wearing Louboutins, maybe in the lesbian community, you go from Doc Martens to Nikes. You may have to figure out and, and decide what your style is just like you would normally. Um, now that you're, normally. you know, thinking about, yeah, quote unquote, normally <laughs> uh, before you had this sort of like realization and, I've seen a lot of people kind of say, well, this kind of woman that I want to date likes this kind of woman. So maybe I will start styling myself in a manner attractive to that person. And then later on, maybe realize they hate doing that and they want that person to be attracted to them however they want to dress. Um, but we all get our cues of how to dress and what to wear from the people around us. Uh, you just may not have been aware of it because the community that you were getting the tips and, and hints from was the dominant culture. Um so, you know, it's all a construct. <laughs> and a lot of stuff will eventually trickle out to the wider uh, non-lesbian culture. I mean, I think many of us have heard jokes about how, uh, you know, the the 
popularity of the undercut would sometimes make it more difficult to figure out if a lady was receptive <laughs> to dating other ladies. Um, also, I want to point and out the final that shirt. Le Bouton makes sneakers, so you can even uh, split the difference there. Um, I did not buy, but once deeply coveted a pair of sneakers when I was uh, in weirdly Las Vegas looking at shoes. Um <laughs> I was waiting for a flight, and I really, really, really wanted some very fancy sneakers, and I did not buy them because that would be outrageous. But I think about them often with great This fondness. is something you and I have in common, is we both deeply love shoes. We just deeply love different shoes. Very different kinds of shoes, but you are one of my favorite people to talk about shoes with, I think, in part because we were both very fussy and like interested yes. in finding just the right pair, but we're looking for very different things, and... It just takes all kinds. And yet we are both gay. Imagine that. You know, <laughs> in very different, different ways. Tastes. And yet it just makes Quiet. the world more beautiful and wonderful. So I love it. It's the best. And, and anyway, I want to say also to this person who wrote this letter, like, welcome to this exciting world. There's so many cool, smart people. Um, the world honestly just opened up even more now because you get to be friends with everyone. Mm-hmm. And you get to date girls. That, which is the best part. I, I also might point you towards, I wrote a thing for the toast. <laughs> About dating. The toast. Why was that? about dating as a trans woman, but, uh, you know, it may be applicable. Yeah. Yeah. I (laughs) wrote a lot of stuff before I thought I might be trans, so I don't know if I can recommend any of it because I I was doing a lot at the time. But, um, yes, heck yeah. Check it out. And good luck. Keep us posted. All right. This next letter is all you. Oh, I think I read I read the lesbian one. I think Did you? you? Oh, I was just so excited. I just I associate these two <laughs> letters in a row so much with you because these are the ones we talked about the most. But you're right. I apologize. I will read it. Subject, how to stop random yelling. Dear Prudence, I live in a college town in an apartment complex with lots of undergrads. I'm a grad student. While it's normally a great place to live, I have one problem. At random times throughout the day, but especially at night, the residents scream or shout so loudly that I can hear them whether my window is open or closed. The yells are such that I can't really tell whether they've just seen a bug or they're hurt or being attacked or if it's the start of a serious argument. Due to a past history of abuse, random shouts like this set me on edge and make me hyper alert. I don't know any of my neighbors or which ones are screaming at any given point. How do I address this or deal with it? I just have to say that sounds horrible, and I'm really sorry this is happening, and uh, that apartment sounds like kind of a nightmare. Which is... I think that... Oh, go ahead. (laughs) No, no, no. I just was, like, realizing I was kind of sitting like, yeah, that's really rough. And then I was like, oh, I should... We should think of advice to give this person. Right, right. Which is is the hard part, because I think that in a lot of cases like this, um, not to be uh, sort of the bearer of bad news, but there may not be much that you can do to change the external world in this case. Um, short of leaving up a lot of sort of passive-aggressive notes that say, please try not screaming. Um, sort of the office, you know, level of... Uh, when I say office, I mean like office that you go to for work, like level of passive-aggressive notes. Um, people may not care. Like, they're drinking, they're doing whatever. They may just be going wild. Uh, I would recommend what I would say is like damage limitation. So what are strategies that you can do on your own? Just... Uh, for yourself that can make this easier, whether it's earplugs, better sound dampening in your house, um, finding other things to do besides being at home during those times. Uh, You know, if it's specifically at a certain period of time at night or on certain nights of the week, um, just preparing for that, that it's going to be a hard one until you find a new place to live. I would also consider finding a new place to live. Um, Although if you're in a college town and a lot of undergrads live near the school, which I'm assuming is where you live. Um, then 
that could be a challenge. Right. Uh, but, you know, a house or something like that where you have a little bit more separation. Yeah. That said, loud noises are never going to stop being a problem as long as you live around humans. Um, and that is a larger issue, I think. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I, I agree that there's a couple of different possibilities. So I, I would say, number one, um, given that it's random. Um, you can't really tell if they're coming from a number of different places. So it doesn't sound like you're like, it's very clearly coming from the same apartment or it's always the same voice. Um, I, I think that is at least a clue that it is probably more often something along the lines of young undergraduate enthusiasm, kids starting a party, somebody seeing a bug, rather than somebody is repeatedly being harmed in the complex. Um, so I think it does not sound like at, at present you have reason to think that somebody is in frequent distress um so at least in the sense of the fear of like is there somebody who's being hurt that i need to try to help or or um who is screaming for help and isn't receiving any i think uh, you don't yet have strong reason to believe that which you may still feel a lot of panic in that moment but i think at least you can put that aside um that's really horrible though that you're dealing with you know your own abuse history and feeling this intense sense of like hypervigilance whenever the screaming happens um and and so i think yeah in the long term maybe talking to other graduate students um and saying like you know because for a number of reasons i'm sure graduate students would want a quieter environment than a lot of undergrads um, it, it may be that some of your, you know, um, cohort has had similar experiences and they know other apartment complexes or houses that are not quite so like jammed up against, you know, a hundred other people um, that might have a slightly quieter environment that in the long term you could potentially move into. Um, and then just when it comes to like, how do I deal with this? How do I take care of myself? Um, yeah, if it's possible to to do any sort of soundproofing in your place, you can look into that. My guess is that if you're a grad student and it's more than like 50 bucks, that's not going to be doable. So I, I would say if you haven't already, invest in a white noise machine. Um, you know, get some really good earplugs, uh, noise canceling headphones. Um, if you can't afford that right now, um, you know, maybe uh, like talk to some friends uh, or or if you have family members who'd be willing to help you out with that, um, that, that it would help you um, just be able to like be in your place and not be like vibrating with anxiety. Um, anything along totally. those, even just playing music when you're at home, um, anything that would sort of raise the ambient level of sound in your apartment, not just something that feels constantly like you're being bombarded with sound, but such that a scream wouldn't break the silence. Um, that might be helpful. I also have sort of a, this is a, it's worked for me and it's worked for some people in my life, but your mileage may vary sort of advice. Um, a lot of the stuff that I've dealt with in my life that triggers sort of panic responses um, through history stuff, uh, sort of reminding me of those things, have been greatly aided by um, working out. Um, I go to the gym and do powerlifting, but a lot of different stuff works. And I've had friends have this prescribed to them by their therapist or doctor um, talk to those people in your life first, but uh, sometimes retraining your body that um, higher adrenaline and higher heartbeats don't always associate with uh, sort of the fight or flight instinct that they can be done in a controlled environment. That can sometimes be helpful because then you know when a loud noise happens, your body doesn't immediately panic. It says, oh, yep, those happen. Um, once again, that may not work for you. It may not be accessible to you. But I've I've personally found a great deal of help in that regard by just going and teaching my body that a high heart rate occasionally um, is actually a thing that I can handle. 
Um, and and because I think there's that split sometimes between what we know in our head and what we feel in our body. And um, it sounds like to a degree, this may be a body thing that when you hear these noises, you feel this like deep sense of horror. Um, and, and there are ways of teaching your body in some cases that that's not the case. Yeah. And I'm so glad that's been helpful for you. And, you know, letter writer, if that is helpful for you, I hope you are able to take it. And if it's not, no worries. But you may also, too, want to look into if you're a graduate student, you may have access to um, your college's counseling center um, and it may help to book an appointment there and just to talk through um what you're experiencing, if they have any strategies, if it even just helps to spend some time at the counseling center, um, just discussing your your own response to trauma. You may already be seeing a therapist. I don't want to make assumptions, but if you haven't tried that one yet, that may be a low cost way to to get some help. And certainly, I I think you could always speak to the apartment manager or your landlord and just check and see like, hey, as a building, do we have quiet hours? Um, sometimes it, it's helpful for like the landlord to send around reminders. It's not quite, it's a little bit stronger than like a random note written by one of your, um, you know, apartment mates, um, just reminding everybody that like, hey, between, you know, midnight and 8 a.m., don't scream so much. Um, so yeah, a number of different things that may prove helpful in the long term. I hope you're able to find a place that's not an apartment complex full of undergraduates because yeah, those those buddies scream a lot. I remember being an undergraduate, there was a lot of shouting. And it may also be helpful if you ever do in the laundry room or wherever encounter other apartment mates to introduce yourself and just say, hey, like I live on in this apartment, good to meet you. Having that sort of rapport can really help with a lot of other things in addition to this sort of um, issue. I, I personally wouldn't start off by saying, hey, I hear loud noises all the time. But as you start to like develop that, I live in the same complex as you um, sort of acquaintance, then you can say like, wow, it's loud here on the weekends, isn't it? And see how they react. And if they go, I don't know what you're talking about, then maybe they're the noisemaker. <laughs> mm -hmm. But if they're like, oh, yeah, it totally is horrible. I wish I didn't live here. Um, maybe having that camaraderie will help a little bit. Mm -hmm. But uh, mostly I hope that you find a place in the future that feels more comfortable to you. Um, and and I, I wish there were better options sort of in the middle time to, to mitigate that stuff. Um, it's unfortunate that people are not always respectful or aware that other people live near them. All right. Next one is all you. Cool. Oh, boy. Subject, uh, out of bounds. Dear Prudence, my niece cut her brother out of her life after he used the N-word in a fit of anger against her biracial stepdaughter. The little girl had drawn on some of his work papers. While no one is happy with my nephew, a lot of the family think my niece is overreacting. Her brother apologized, but my niece says only a racist would ever use that word, and people reveal who they are under pressure. She's been struggling as a full-time stepmother after her husband won full custody of the kids and is hypervigilant as a result. My niece will not attend any family event where her brother is, which leaves the rest of us in a bind. Her parents are extremely upset about this rift, and I am the only one that my niece seems to talk to anymore. I don't want to push her away, but no one is going to shun her brother completely. What should I do here? Um, if you, a grown man, see that a little girl has colored with crayons on some of your work papers, and your response is to call her the N-word... You are an enormous racist. And a bad person. Yeah, not that's not... 
yeah, I don't want to get into the business of like trying to grade racism on a curve, but that is like advanced racism. Yeah. That's god awful. And anger management issue is a like a plenty. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Nothing about like this is not even just like oh, a heartfelt apology and we can all move on. Um this was not like it, this does not fit into that category. A little girl used some crayons, which little girls do, and he called her like the number one racial slur. Um, mm-hmm. So the 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 sentence like, look, none of us are happy with him, but we think the niece is overreacting. Like, what would it take to make you like deeply angry with him? Like, if this is your bar for like, oh man, Josephus, you shouldn't have done that. I don't know why I went with like an ancient historian of the Roman Empire for a fake name, <laughs> but like, yeah, I, I, like if if is as a family, your response has been like, man, you shouldn't have done that. Glad you apologized. Really think about it. Like this, this man needs to change his entire life. Yeah, I wonder if there's a there's an underlying attitude of like, well, who hasn't done that? Oh, um, yeah, a- absolutely. It, which which is uh, may not be what you meant by this letter, but it sounds like that a little bit. Like, well, none of us will cut him out of our lives because like it's not that bad. And I think first acknowledging it is that bad mm-hmm. um, is pretty important. I understand that like. In my opinion, cutting people out of your life is not an effective way to encourage them to change in every case. Um, but saying to him something along the lines of, what you did was abhorrent. Um, that little girl has enough on her plate without having to deal with your absolute shit. Um, and until you you know, seek out some counseling and maybe go deal with your anger issues, um, I would prefer you not to be at the family events because I think this little girl deserves to be at them more than you do. Um, you know, that that's a way forward. Uh, you know, it's it's a tricky thing in this case because most of the time the person who's in the family and everyone's already like sort of made excuses for years for whatever other stuff they've done yeah. gets to stay in the family when the new person has to deal with all of the stuff that people sweep under the rug. Right. Um, like if you've ever married into a family, you get that like, oh, don't worry about Uncle Jim. He's just that way. Don't accept that Uncle Jim is just that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that line about, uh, you know, my niece has been struggling. She's hypervigilant as a result. Like, I can see the way in which you are setting this up to dismiss your niece. Like, by virtue of the fact that she has been going through a difficult divorce, um, you want to say that she's overreacting. And I think it is pretty cruel to use the fact that she's had apparently a difficult couple of years to say, therefore, if she gets upset over a grown man calling her little girl this vile racial slur, um, like that shouldn't be paid attention to. Like that's that's a fucked up way to bend over backwards to to dismiss her. Yeah. And you should know that that is what you were doing. Um, you say your niece says that only a racist would ever use that word. I, I, I agree that it is racist to call someone that word. Yeah. I don't think that your niece is making an outrageous statement there, um, especially when it is a grown man um, saying this to a little girl. Like, this is not a case of, like, uh, you know, he, he, you know, had five or six drinks and then, like, forgot to slice enough birthday cake for everyone. This is, like, a grown man in full possession of all of his faculties saw that a child had doodled um, and went with the N-word. And and I want to as a as a white person, I want to say that like uh, it's an important thing for us to do as white people is own the fact that we are racist, that we live in a world of systemic inequality, and that 
the way that we enact ourselves is usually, you know, at best propping up sort of institutional uh, white supremacy. And whether or not we interpersonally use certain words or, you know, get mad at certain people, right? Um, that doesn't make us any less culpable in that regard. And so sort of writing it off as like only a racist would use that word. It's, it's hard. Like, yes, racists will use that word, but racists do a lot of other stuff, including shielding family members who do this sort of thing from any kind of consequence. Yep. Um, so maybe interrogating how you yourself feel about the use of words and the use of things that, um, you know, are very super racist uh, you know, think about how you react to news stories about black and brown people. Um, think about the ways in which, you know, you act politically, right? Those things are all affected by that. And right. so um, if you do some soul searching, you may find that you yourself harbor some of those feelings. And I would suggest rooting those out and, yeah. and working with a therapist on those. Just ask yourself the question, why is it so important to me that I make excuses for a grown man who used this word against a little child who had done something that all little children do. Like, why is that? Why am I so deeply invested in protecting him from possibly being called a racist? Um, yeah. My guess is if you sit with that for a minute, it will be because you feel like, well, if he is a racist, then I am a racist. And obviously the worst thing that can happen is for a white person to be called a racist, not for a little girl to be called the N-word by a family member because she was coloring. Like... Right. I would just invite you to extend some of the emotional imagination and empathy you have been extending to, you, you know, this adult white male relative who hurled a slur at this little girl and spend five minutes imagining yourself as her um, being a child, drawing and hearing that and thinking that's something a family member called me. That's something a grown man called me. I know it's not good. Yeah. And I know that that's me. Um, I. I, I I, I think if you were to do that, if you were to really do that, you would know that your empathy belongs with her and the woman who is protecting her. Um, yep. And that if all your niece has done thus far is say, I don't want to be around him. Um, like if all he did was apologize and that's it. No, like I, I, I got to really investigate my life. I got to really turn around this racist approach I have to the world. I got to deal with my anger. I got to deal with my racism. Um like if all he did was say sorry as if it were this is not a one apology fix sometimes that happens in families this is not one of those situations i understand why she doesn't want to be around him um and you know the implicit ending of this letter is like i'm the only one who's really talking to her her parents are really upset um how do i basically convince her to not be so mad that's not your job yeah your job is not to convince her not to be so mad um your job is to not defend this guy um, your job is to look for the racism in your own life. Your job is to ask how your niece's little girl is doing um, and let this grown ass man yeah. answer for his own actions. I think that's dead on. Yeah. And I, I um, if for any reason the mother is listening to this, uh, this is the terrible thing that's happened. You deserve anything but this. And I hope that your family um, figures out how horrific they're being and um, finds a way mm -hmm. to make things better for you and that you find people in your life that support and care about you in the way that you deserve to be treated. Yep. And, and thank you for looking out for your little girl. Um, thank you yes, for not for sure. trying to minimize it or say you have to forgive him or putting her around these people who want to minimize this. Um, 
you were doing the right thing in protecting her and looking out for her. And I'm very, very glad that you're doing that. That's the right thing to do. And to anyone else who might be in this family, if you ever see any of his work papers, just draw the shit out of them. Just doodle any fucking thing you can think of. Draw everything and anything that comes to mind. Draw the entire series finale of Game of Thrones inside every piece of paper in his home. But no work paper be sacrosanct. Uh, just doodle self-portraits on his car, everything, everything. Replace every <laughs> note on the apps of his phone with self-portraits you've done with the like little doodle app. Just, I want that man to see art on every professional piece of paper for the rest of his life. <sighs> All right, last one. So the subject of this next letter is faking it. Dear Prudence, I've been dating my current boyfriend for just under a year now, and it's going great. He's kind, supportive, interesting, a good communicator. I can see him being the one. We've talked about marriage, but neither of us is in a rush. The problem is that I've been keeping a secret from him, and it's eating me up inside. I lost my virginity to an emotionally and sexually abusive man who never cared about my pleasure. We only had sex when he wanted to, and he never... uh, We only had sex when he wanted to, and foreplay didn't exist for him, so the sex was always painful. He was my first, so I never knew that sex wasn't supposed to be this way. Eventually, he broke up with me after I was sexually assaulted, and he felt like my body no longer belonged to him. In my sexual interactions since this relationship, I rarely orgasm. I can get myself off easily enough when I masturbate, but usually when I'm having sex with a man, I just can't pursue that kind of pleasure. I feel like this is wrong and probably makes me a bad feminist, but usually I just fake it so that the guy stops trying. I really love having sex with my current partner. He's caring and attentive and all of the right things. I tell him when sex is painful for me, and he's the first partner I've felt comfortable saying that to. I've even had a couple of orgasms with him, which puts him by far in the minority. But most of the time, I fake it like I always do. It makes me feel like a liar, and even after great sex, I want to cry. I love him. I can see myself marrying him. I can't see myself marrying someone I'm lying to on a regular basis. Also, I feel like I deserve orgasmic sex, and I feel like he would want that for me too if he knew about it. But how do you tell someone that you faked almost every orgasm for a year? Is there a world in which I don't have to tell him? What if I don't tell him and just stop faking it? I feel like I'll have to explain my sudden loss of ability to orgasm. Oof. So This is painful. (laughs) It is. It is. There's so much going on here. I think the first thing I want to say to this letter writer is, like, on top of everything else, she is beating herself up for, like, the strategy that she has developed to really, like, survive Right. Yeah. Um, Like you did not do this on a whim because you thought it was fun. um, And yet you're like, I know it's wrong. I'm probably a bad feminist. Um, You are a person who is dealing with abuse and trauma and you have been doing your absolute best. And it has only been very, very recently that you have felt safe enough around a partner that your mind and body could even consider the idea of letting this big guard down. So this is not like a lie. I mean, yes, it is not the truth, of course, but this is not a lie in the sense of. Uh, selfishly, I, I wanted to mislead my partner um, or I just did it because I, I don't feel like it. Like you have been dealing with really intense physical and sexual trauma. Um, and so the fact that you have been terrified to share a, a moment like that with a partner that you have felt even with a really great partner kind of shut down around sex makes a ton of sense. And it is not... Like, don't don't use language like wrong or bad feminist to describe yourself in this situation because you have been um, remarkably, remarkably brave. I'm sorry. I know it's a little cheesy to say that, but I, I, I really do feel that. Yeah, it's super hard. And I, um, you know, I think that a lot of people, um, a lot of people who are 
trans or queer, a lot of women have dealt with the same kind of thing. So, you know, my heart goes out to you. Um, I think that, you know, you ask about talking about this with your partner and it sounds like you really care about your partner and you really want to share things with your partner. And um, I recommend talking to him. But uh, that said, it may be helpful to have a mediator in, in the way of like having some sort of if you have a therapist yourself, uh, if you don't, I recommend having a therapist for sure. But even having a therapist that you both can talk to, so you can sort of work through not just this, because I don't think this is the only thing, but um, the general feelings of like, how do I develop and, and share trust with a person um, when my trust has been so horribly breached in the past? And that's a long and difficult thing to work on, even when you care about and love somebody. Um, and being able to work on this stuff with somebody else sort of guiding it can be really, really helpful. I think a lot of, um, it's pretty clear that a lot of men in the world are taught that they are a failure at sex if they can't bring someone to orgasm, uh, which is definitely not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can find a way to, you know, change sex to a thing that you do, it sounds like you have fun and good sex. What if sex didn't have an orgasm at the end of it all the time? What if sex could just be fun? Um, You know, getting your partner to also just enjoy what it is and not look for some sort of outcome Mm -hmm. uh, can be a good, like longer term goal. Um, you may even find that in doing that, like orgasms follow. Yeah. But, uh, I think whatever happens here, it's going to be a longer process and it may be helpful to have other people involved, um, in that sort of counselory capacity. Uh, but it's, it's a super, I would go as far to say it's a super common thing, um, this sort of issue. And I wish more people talked about it because it's uh, really easy, I imagine, um, for you. And it's definitely been easy in my case, too, to feel alone in this and to think, oh, my God, I'm the only one doing this. Right. Um, and, and like Danny said, don't use words like bad or or whatever um, for yourself because you're not. You're you're surviving and you're dealing with it and you care. And, and you not only like think that you yourself deserve good things, but you want good things for your partner, too. Um, and it sounds like in a lot of ways he is uh, really aware and caring. And um, it's possible that he'd be really receptive to this sort of thing. If you said, hey, um, here's the reasons why I felt unsafe in the past. You know about some of them. Those have influenced some of the ways that I've acted with you. And I don't feel great about it. But here's why. Um, you know, that kind of honest communication can be really difficult. But mm-hmm. I would hope that if if someone really cares about you, they're able to hear that stuff. Yeah. And I think the really crucial thing for you to remember, letter writer, is that... Um, when it comes to stuff like this and all the trauma that you've been holding on to, there can be a sense of like, if I have this, like if I know that what I look and sound like when I am on the brink of orgasm is something that is private and wholly mine, I have a little sexual world that nobody else can intrude on and it belongs to me and I'm in charge. And that's really big. So when you say that, like, it's hard for you to get into that mindset when you have sex with a man, um, I get that. Like, I think part of the reason that the idea, like, there's a sense of loss. Like, I don't want to have to tell him because um, there's this kind of idea of like, if I give this thing up, I will not have a safe, private sexual world. Um, and in the past, when you've had other people in your sexual world, it has resulted in trauma and assault and rape. Um, and so any kind of conversation that you may have with your partner about this, I encourage you, take your time, talk to a therapist, find a find a good sex 
positive therapist. I don't mean sex positive in the sense that like everyone should be having all the sex all the time right. as much as possible. But like somebody who is like aware of about how trauma informs our daily lives and, and can be helpful and gentle and patient um, and help you figure out what you need. Um, I, I feel like one of my concern here is that you're already really worried about if I have to tell him, you know, that he's such a great guy. I feel like the implication there is like, what if this hurts him? And my fear is that as great a guy as he may be, if he hears this and he goes straight to, oh, this is really hard for me. Oh, gosh, I feel like, again, not that he doesn't have a right to feel that way, but that the big issue here is how do you experience intimacy with him having had intimacy used to abuse you in the past so I, I think part of your fear is like if i say this the story now becomes he feels hurt or betrayed or sad or depressed about the fact that i was not actually orgasming with him before and now there is no room because all i feel is guilty look at this other thing i fucked up look at the other way in which i'm bad and i don't want that for you so i think you know, you need to give yourself a lot of time. You need a lot of help and support in figuring out how you would want to talk about this with him. And I do think ultimately it will feel good. I think you will feel better. I think you will feel less alone, less isolated, um, less like you cannot let him into this part of your life. But I don't think you have to do this overnight. Um, I don't think you have to frame this as like this awful thing that you have done to him. I, I think this is something that you can figure out ways to share with him so that he understands um, that you are that, that he's the first person you've been able to talk about this with. Yeah, and it's it's a challenging thing. There, as far as like other things you can do, um, finding ways to explore with each other things that are not sex, that are like making out and things like that, can be really cool too. Um, you know, if there's ever a trust breach in a relationship that includes sex, I think there's a period of time where you rebuild trust. Um, and finding a way to do that where you both feel good about it. Um, that's something that, you know, there's a lot of books out there that can be helpful for that. Um, many of them are sold at sort of sex positive stores as well. Um, the sorts of stores that might sell like magic wands also often carry really helpful books about like sexual intimacy. Um, but, you know, we all live in this world of like a, a patriarchal dominant culture that tells us that like women are tools of men for sex and that men are sort of entitled to orgasms and that the sort of more evolved man is the man who is willing to give an orgasm to a woman. Um, so I want to say that I'm also really glad that you yourself can find pleasure on your own. That's really cool. And I hope that you hold on to that because it's, um, it's a good thing. It's really good that you can take care of yourself in that way. And, um, and I hope that that continues to be the case. Um, and I hope that you know that, like Danny said, his response is uh, will be really telling when you start to talk about this stuff. Uh, and hopefully he will understand the myriad reasons why uh, it's been difficult for you to um, share those intimate moments with him and and not immediately leap to any kind of accusation or whatever else. Um, but yeah, I feel for you. This is it's a hard thing, uh, but you're not alone. There's a lot of people out there. Uh, including myself, who have dealt with this, and it's it's challenging. Yep. Yeah, and, and so to to go into it thinking too, yeah, like this will be a number of conversations. You may both need to to like take a little pause from certain types of sex and intimacy for a while. That does not necessarily mean um, that that's going to be what things are like forever. Of course, he also will have some feelings about this. I don't mean to say that like his only job is to show up and be like a beacon of support and never have an opinion or a feeling of his own. I just mean I, I, I want 
your trauma to be the center of this. I want that to be the primary thing that gets paid attention to. Um, yep. And yeah, again, like this is probably going to be a way in the future. But, you know, at some point after you two have had a number of these conversations and when and if you are ready to try to start rebuilding intimacy, um, one of the things that you could do is have him with you when you get yourself off. Um yeah. So that there's not a pressure of he is trying to figure something out or trying to achieve something that he thought he had achieved before. Um, and to also, I think, just bear in mind, too, like it's wonderful to do things that are like sex adjacent, but not sex. Certainly have sex in ways that are not like geared towards getting off. Um, and also, I think, talk about ways in which like sex where you touch yourself to finish is not compromised sex. That's not a worse no. version of sex. That should be something that like is always uh, available. Like that's a completely, that's very common, frankly. Like that's not Super that common. common. And I think a lot of people think, no, it should be like, if not hands-free, solely based on like the, you know, audio visual clues that you give a partner. Um, and that's just a lot. Yeah. That's a lot to put. I think, you know, sometimes it almost feels like people think um, not only should it be hands-free, but I should almost be actively trying not to orgasm. And that person should break through my like, my intentional disregard for their ministrations. Yeah, there should be some mind like reading that. and magic like, going on. In every single case where somebody else is involved in you having an orgasm, you are still the prime mover. Mm-hmm. And um you have all of the power there and and uh you know it's it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. Um we talked about therapists earlier and I think that um having your partner also hopefully is seeing a therapist. I think it's good for everyone in the world to have a therapist if yeah. they can afford it and it's available to them um, because he may want to talk about some things uh, that he needs to deal with on his own that uh, you don't really need to hear or work with him on. Um, but if he has feelings about, you know, his worth as a man and his ability to provide orgasm or whatever, that's fine. He can feel those feelings, yeah. but he needs to talk to those, uh, talk about those with his friends or his therapist or spiritual guidance counselor whatever he has um because those are important things for him to work through as well regardless of whether he's in a relationship with you or not yes i I think that's such a good thing to point out too because i don't want to make it sound like any of his potential feelings would not be important or meaningful simply that especially like based on where you are coming from you would be not the best person to support him with that those feelings matter and deserve attention and support and care and of course there will be times for the two of you to talk about that because you're partners. Um, but the primary person or people he should be going to with this hurts me or I'm feeling sad or I feel like I've let her down or I, I feel some sort of way about my sexual prowess. The majority of that should not be going to you because you've already got a lot of self-loathing on your plate um, yeah. and a lot of self-recrimination. So that that's what I mean. Not that it doesn't matter what he feels, but that um, you're not going to be able to help him out with all of that. Um, and I, I just think, again, you don't have to do anything right now. You are not a bad person. If you do not tell him tomorrow, you need time yeah. and help to work up to this. Um, but you say, I can't see myself marrying someone I feel like I'm lying to on a regular basis. I just really want to encourage you to pay attention to that. I, I hope so much that you do not force yourself into a situation where you say like well i've already done it this long and i love him so my only option is to keep doing it forever and that's the price i have to pay for having faked it the first couple of times and then i locked myself into something and now i just have to do this for the rest of my life until i die um you do not have to do that you You definitely don't yeah 
Um, and and I, I would suggest too that like if this is something that you're if you're considering marrying this person, you really care about them. Um, it's highly likely that you both have a few things in your life that you could work on together yeah. um, and with a therapist that would make a potential future marriage way stronger. Um, I don't know anyone who's ever regretted not getting married sooner or sorry, later rather. Mm-hmm. Um, waiting a little bit longer is often really awesome. Um, you know, you have a lot more time to think about this and plan this. Uh, hopefully you have an incredibly long life, mm-hmm. um, whether apart or together. And uh, that life is made richer and better by taking a lot of time now to really care for yourself, love on yourself, and and find supportive um, therapists, friends, um, and confidants that you can work on this with. Yep. Um, so glad that you reached out and asked, and I hope that you seek out some more resources and, and take care of yourself. Yep. Yep. Uh, Brooke, well, thank you. This was moving, useful, sometimes funny. Sometimes <laughs> painful stuff. Um, and I'm really, really glad that we got to do this. Me too. I, I hope we help some people. I hope that we hear back from some of them. Uh, as a regular listener to the show, I'm always glad when there are questions that I feel equipped to uh, respond to a little bit. And I actually get a chance to do that. So um, it's a nice feeling. Well, I am, as always, so grateful to you for coming on the show. And I can't wait to see you again soon. Yeah, I'll probably see you in September. Bye for now, friend. Bye, buddy. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. 